Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. There's something, there's something with uh, like getting back to the, the whole, I'm just circling back around because we go in heaps of directions, but with the, the culture and the PC, you know, this, this liberal culture and, and politics, um, there's the political correctness, which is out of control. And we've got cancel culture and something and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that's always irritated me, and it's become a really pronounced phenomenon in the last couple of years. And my partner has noticed it as well. And she has no time at all, no sympathy for modern feminists at all. She sees through all through that bullshit. And um, we've both been really annoyed to see there's this culture of like shaming someone who doesn't say something politically correct. And what really annoys us is when that person who said something valid and who made a point and took a stand and said something valid and was right and accurate. And then they got shamed by the culture of, you know, the PC culture and the shitstorm. And then they came back out and went, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. And, you know, they kowtow and they bowed. And that really annoys me. We've got to stop facilitating these lunatics i'm afraid that that is a very that's the sign of feminization and collectivism and the death of heroism you know james woods is good you know there's some guys who won't do that but yeah you're quite right many others have come out and blabbed apologies like some docile dunce (laughs) and that's a climb see then they're not lovers of knowledge because wisdom and knowledge needs to be backed up and needs to be solid ground and every time you push and they fall over, I'm afraid that's an affront to wisdom. That's a front to the very thing that they were standing for in the first place. And you get it across the board and you'll get it again and again and again. Now, we are run by corrupt men almost all the way through the world. And even if you get one who's slightly less corrupt and you know can lead in a certain positive direction, look what the crowd does. They literally unleash, just like Albert Pike's old statement, we will unleash the nihilists uh, and the atheists. And that's what they did. And they unleashed it. Like I told you, in my private life, they unleashed. You know, I, and I know who's behind it. And I know even all the reasons why my work was attacked and more than anybody else's on the planet. And so I know that. And then you take it up to the next level, the next level, the next level. I saw it on the streets of Belfast, another context of how you get shouted down and how fear works. And, you know, yeah, it's very, very difficult to deal with the phenomena of fear. It, it, when man was urbanized, Already then this became a problem because the man who's already in nature has a stalwartness and a heroism, you know, because he's on the land. He has to fight the elements. He's got to plant things. He's got to get up at four in the morning and deal with the sick horses and the pigs, you know, and that, that brought that was a broad shouldered sort of, you know, masculine approach. And women did it, too. Women yeah. were so needed on the farm and the hard, hard graft that they put in. So everybody was much more masculine. And, you know, when we grew up in Ireland, your idea of your average New York guy was a guy who'd looked in your face and said, what's your fucking problem, right? And, and spoke up and thought up and never got, you know, watching the great film noir movies. The reality, I'm still in shock. Forget Americans being in shock or what's happened. I'm in fucking shock. We laughed and loved the fact news, Humphrey Bogart movies and all, where people just looked you in the eye and said exactly what they felt. That was refreshing to us. It's refreshing to any repressed culture. That's why we want to get out of where we were and come over to America. Mm. And straight up talk, straight up talk. And for a while, you got that. You know, uh, but it's completely dead now. Nobody tells you anything. And then there's seeping microaggression. Instead yeah. of being honest and saying, hey, that hairstyle sucks. You know, now it's all uh, PC. 
and microaggression. So that's any healthier. Sure, where are all the psychologists who know that it's not healthy? When have you last heard one of them stand up and critique anything that's happened in the last five years? Where is their voices? Well, either the media doesn't want them on and doesn't interview them, but don't they have their own websites and don't they have their own podcasts? I can't find anyone who's critiqued anything that's happened because they're all sagging liberals. They're all femi people, you know, and they're dockers and they're 50 year old living in Seattle. I've watched them. I've seen them. I've shopped with these people. They've lost their balls, man. These fucking Andrew Jacksons would kick their ass today if they were alive. Yeah. America is a land of patriots. Right? Supposedly. You want these, yeah. Well, where's their pictures of Andrew Jackson now on their walls? And William Henry and all of these, you know, uh, great, great martyrs of the past. Well, they, you know, they just, they've lost it. And this is the creeping feminization. And it has, the, the why it's hard is because like we just discussed, it comes from multiple, I'm not going to go over it again, but there's political, physical, you know, the family. There's many reasons to bring this about. Feminism, feminization doesn't come about just from one action. Mm. It's multiple actions all happening together, but on the state level and on the most intimate level. Now, Ayn Rand covered most of those things. There are authors out there who covered most of it, not all, but covered more than you need to get the civilization going. So I have no respect for those people who have ignored these great thinkers. In her fiction, she was a bestseller, a bestseller of bestsellers. Right, she wrote philosophy books, how many have read them? So there's something, cognitive dissonance is a very accurate word. We're not living in the word when we speak that, that's not just a word just plucked from air. That actually means something, as does this reality, as does uh, uh, you know, schizogenia. And uh, any, any words, like uh, you know pathology they mean things and that's what we're seeing neurotic uh, suffering as opposed to legitimate suffering so i try to break it all down for people and uh, try to move towards the work i'm more inspired to do and talk to a wider audience that is also inspired as opposed to being too narrow about it uh, and it's taking time to get there but you know yeah it's going well and there's a good response to, to that work yeah, I mean, that's good to hear. Uh, what is the, what do you think the essence of, I mean, there's, there's always, see, for me, like, I, I think you and I probably could say, we could both probably say that we've had this dichotomy of, well, there's this sort of shitstorm of society that we've got to talk about and acknowledge and kind of inject our point of view on it and right, like critique it and say, here's where we're going wrong, here's where we're off course. But at the same time, like, there's stuff that we'd rather be doing. There's more kind of like high higher level kind of stuff that we rather focus on like what what is it that you know if you took away all the nonsense and the you know the the, the brainwashing programs and, and just ignore that like what would you rather spend your time really fleshing out yeah well uh i keep it i don't have any future vision in my life i've never had it uh so i have the new book coming out on existentialism and cd got delayed i'd like to get that finished not worrying about any of these things. And I've actually, in my personal life, gone into a mode of much more calmness and doing things you know, at the right time, whereas before it was a very, very much a hard graft and labor. I've cut back on that. So those two things would need to be, I would immediately handle those. What else? Uh, all the websites were up to date and fixed last year during the lockdown. Well, we're still under lockdown, guess what? But you know, sites that have been sort of unfinished for maybe more than a decade were completed so there's a lot of good things that that way i've got loads and loads of new music you know so yeah that would be the way i don't have any i don't have any larger future plans 
you know, I don't don't base things on that. It's more just uh, the projects that I have at hand that are not quite finished yet, you know. And that's, yeah, that's about it, really. Um, the book is fairly demanding, so there's, and I want to do a good job on it because it's a subtle subject and needs to be done right. It's actually, it's actually finished, but, you know, I need to get it into Kindle and I need a, a better computer and things like that. So it's just small things in the way. Yeah. The larger work of it has been done. There's a few extra little polishing notes and things like that. And I do have to read it through and finally get it into Kindle. But that's all the mechanical stuff. The book is actually pretty much done already, which is huge relief. And that's one of the reasons I do things in a much calmer way, because that book dates back to those early periods. Yeah, right. I start studying Heidegger in uh, 92. And had a, had a, although I didn't know his name, I had studied his mentors, like people like Rilke in the 80s. And even earlier, I was a, I was actually introduced to Rilke even a long time before that, and always loved that type of poetry, that existential poetry. So it's a very old project. If you, I could really take that one back, but really, it, it starts when I picked up the first Heidegger book and had to read it for five years, even to understand one line. Yeah, right. I'm not joking. Yeah, five years just to understand even the most. And I bought all the books for dummies, and they didn't want any help. So by God, it was a long project to work it and work it and work it like some incredible uh, panning for gold. As long as I knew it was gold, right? But I, I didn't know what it meant or how to apply it. Or, but it just was a very gradual sort of a, you know that the grape is good, the wine is going to be brilliant, but you've got to go through the, the whole period of that. So it's it, it took a savoring through all those years. I mean, people just don't believe it. You know, my first exposure to the female psychology was in 1989. Just a year before I got to America in uh, September of that year. I think it was literally weeks, if not a month, that the first exposure to female psychology, uh, that there is such a phenomena and, and a little bit about it, very small, was 1989. Mm. And I've carried that through to say the publishing of say Dragon Mother or maybe Female Illuminati, but that's a little bit more occult. The psychology aspect comes out in Dragon Mother, right? That That's 20 years. So again, unlike a lot of other people in this field, there's been projects that have been have to be shelved or were at least kept in the background and they matured very, very gradually. Now that they've come to fruition, I'm glad of that because they're rich, you know, they're not as they're just as like a pulled out of, of the air. So mm. there's something very deep and rich and real about those works. And that's, I think, you know, what has to go into this next book. Uh, but as I say, the websites are pretty much finished. We do have the podcasts. They're demanding. You know, I do all the artwork. I do all the links. I get, I get most of the guests. Uh, that's a very time, you know, for a week. I'm sorry, in a week's time. You know, that's a lot of work. What people get at the end there, it's a lot of work on my part Yeah, to get that. <laughs> for them to look to get guests like yourself oh yeah exactly see and you know to get good guests because remember if you actually people look at our roster uh there's a lot of missing names there that you think would be on uh you know uh, a podcast and they're not there strangely yeah that is a fucking reason for that and secondly you know then i we have to go and get more interesting people mm -hmm. you know from more grassroots level yeah. uh, i think that's far more interesting uh, actually i don't know if people agree but i think it's far more interesting to get ordinary tales from ordinary people on our podcast and then they want something richer. We've got the premium, you know, and every so often, even David and I will just chat without a guest. And those are often very rich as well. So yeah, it's covering a lot of ground, making sure that we're not 
overdoing a particular subject because I got thousands of subjects, you know, from the state of existence in South Africa. That's a project I've got. Um, yeah, the thing, the thing to answer your question is really the forthcoming premiums would be the only thing to get them done by the end of the year. There's five more episodes of idealism on the way. Uh, There's a catastrophism one that's several hours long. There's a history of the Jews, like an introduction. Uh, there'll be deeper work on that subject. There's um, other odds and ends like that, you know, the good subjects uh, on, on the fall of Germany. There's a series, uh, Prisoners of Childhood is a series coming up. Um, yeah, so that would be my main sort of focus, you know, regardless of what goes on in the world. But to answer your question, you see, that uh, to pull away and become completely private is always an option. And it's on my mind all the time. But the thing is, we are social beings. So e say, 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 say I did pull away. Wouldn't I have some bullshit in my neighborhood that I'd even the, the next door guy or to be in the face of or fixing or correcting or what? So in a way, you can step off of the Internet. That doesn't mean the end of injustice. It's how somebody's treating their animal. Right, right now, there's bozos who let their dogs bark into 3 a.m. in the morning. Why? Because they've collapsed drunk on some settee and don't even know that the poor animal is out there freezing. See, I would be writing to somebody or doing something about that or another injustice or, you know, this and this and this and this. There's always mistreatment. There's always injustice around. Um, so you got to say, right, I'm never going to be in that turret or that garret where I'm, I'm, I'm just living in my you know, world. It's always an option to do that. But it's also an option to say, I am still part of my community. I am still being heard by other people. And I have a responsibility as a social animal. And I'm a bit wary of pulling away from that because I think that also leads to neurosis. You know, because I've been through periods like that. And I'm not 100%, any, any, to be completely hermetic, I don't think works. Mm. Uh, we've even had guests on, you know, where I know that they're like that. And you can hear in their voices and some of their narration, they're, they're losing it. Uh, we've actually had guests on and I've listened to other podcasts where I can tell their feet aren't on the ground. Yeah. They, they live far too up in the caves, mate. And it's not good. Mm. You can't be puddle glum. You know, the, this character that C.S. Lewis wrote about, uh, I can understand all the reasons why you want to do that. Recoil from life, recoil from relationships, recoil from walking the dog, you know, but at the same time, the best people I've ever met are ordinary everyday people who still take on the weight of the world and still hang with life and try to savor, you know, do have barbecues and, you know, are accessible. Mm. They're, they're, the, they're the wisest people I've ever met. They're the good people, you know, and we have guests like that on as well. And, and something about them rings more true. So, you know, I can't make a, a broad statement about it, but I feel it's just that much healthier to somewhat engage with the public, especially if it's in a way of bringing great mentors whose names would be forgotten that's mm. what motivates me the most, you know, these Antonio Ludovici's or whoever it may be. I, I, I shiver that these works are buried and that more, even Carl Jung is actually being forgotten. Can you believe it? His work is so poorly uh, available. It's been disfigured a lot by people. Uh, auto rank is completely unheard of, let alone some of the other people I do work on. And I try to organize my premiums. You know, we've done one on auto rank and I have a new set of premiums, you know, of, of it's a forgotten genius series. And we'll be bringing up names like Commons Beaumont in that, because that is actually what puts sweat on my hands. I'm a dread and fear mm. sitting, oh my God, the wisdom that has enlightened me, 
you know, Heidegger's world famous, he's never going to drift away. But there are other ones that, yes, their work has slipped through the cracks. L.A. Waddell, you know, I can name many, Connor McDarry, Ignatius Donnelly, right? What the hell? Are you kidding? You're going to tell somebody, you know, these authors out there, these piss pot authors out there with billion dollar budgets stealing their work mm. or, you know, taking their ideas and then putting their own fucking names on it. That alone makes me very angry and very worried. And I have to do something about it, whether anybody's listening at all. I tried to do something about it by posting on Amazon. They won't let you post. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is really bad. You say one word, they got friends in high places, right? So suddenly, a perfectly healthy critique, but it's because it's pointing in a certain direction. Mm. Suddenly, the world isn't, even the internet won't let you post it. I don't stop. I get more mad. Now I want more people to know about it. Uh, so, yeah, as long as you have that passion, you know, other people will call it madness or anger. No, it's just simple passion. And in any other field, like classical music or something that hasn't got a message with it, everyone goes, yeah, I support that. That person should be supported. Yeah, well, how come what, the rule suddenly changed because now you're dealing with conspiratorial matters, you fuckers? The, the, suddenly you change tune? In every other field, they're championing the so-called lost genius or they want that person to get their say. Everything today is retro. Have you noticed? For the last, last loads and loads of years, everything that the media produces is some retro throwback to this or to that because they've got nothing. Even the movies are spinoffs or remakes, full remakes. They've yeah. remade so many movies and they've made them badly, but I can see what's happening. They don't have even one thimble mm. full of new ideas. This is the world today. And these are worrisome. And it does make you want to retract and just say, hey, and you know something? Even if somebody does, it's okay. Because you can still write a book under a nom de plume. You can still have a, a monthly podcast even. You, know, and you can even have a moniker. You don't have to show your face. Look, there's more options now. You talked about freedom earlier. Yeah, there's more ways to do things. You can do it from your bloody cell phone out in the middle of a forest, You know, just talking to yourself and posting it. So I think that the options are there. And if people feel that they're stressed out by dealing with other individuals, listen to your intuition. And if it says back off, I'm done. I've got to take a breather. Do so. Always follow your intuition, whatever, because it's all about your psychic health. Sometimes, you know, sweating for other people, bleeding for them, uh, showing them the error of their ways can end up destroying you, yeah. as a matter of fact. So, yeah, I can't say to some person, don't take time out or don't take a long sabbatical. They do it in colleges. So what's wrong with us? We could do it easily. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you've got the, you know, your you found the balancing point, that line you got to walk between being like in service, like you're in service to truth and, you know, wisdom and, but, but not doing it to the point where you're actually falling into the trap of martyrdom, right. And destroying yourself in the process. Yeah. I think that changed for me. It had several stages. It probably started after origins and oracles got made. Right. You know, but 2003, something like that, big changes in my life took place where I, I started to realize not to kill yourself for people. Yeah. Whereas before I was too furious, I was too engaged. I, I guess just see everything hot and cold, you know, passion and no passion, everything taken to extremes is bad. Everything, even knowledge, even the seeking, it, it can break down. I, you know, in fact, most of the people that I know who actually did actually technically go insane were more of those people who were working with knowledge mm -hmm. it wasn't for other reasons or relationships or anything. it was they were over pursuing knowledge to the point where they frazzled themselves you know like being on lsd or something where they couldn't stop they stopped being normal people they didn't take bike rides they didn't take 
walks in the park. They, they were just like Mr. Spock's on steroids and it fried their brain. They literally, the job gibbering away, you know, either under a bridge at Venice Beach or in a madhouse. So that taught me as well to know when to savor things and to read slowly and to do things slowly and not be a slave. It's so easy to become a slave of mankind in that collectivist way and, and overly passionate and all. And I used to be like that, so I changed. And then after 2003, several other things, the different parts. Uh, it, it, and then since about, since we did Female Illuminati, it was a live stream. And I think that was in 14, if I'm not mistaken. After that, I also then started to parse things out more. But it's still ongoing, mm. you know, and every year try to lower the workload or just streamline the workload and, you know, parse it out more. Like I've got, I could read you now, uh, you know, at least 20 different projects that need to be done as premiums, but I've organized them, you know, better so that the harder ones are sort of, or the ones that will take more time to research, they're pushed a little bit later in the year, you know, and the ones that I can handle a little bit easier. So things like that. So you don't have to break your balls, you know, uh, in that way. And I think, I think the products come out even better, actually, when you do it in a more mechanical, methodical, calm way, as you do it in a frenetic way. Yeah. So, but again, it's different for everybody. Yeah, that's right. No, I, I've, I actually made, because, uh, because of the baby, I kind of made that choice this year, you know, it's like, right. you don't have the option anymore of like the willpower, like just forging ahead and regardless of what else is going on around you, because there's something in the, you know, in the corner over there that can't be ignored, literally can't be ignored. Right. <laughs> and so this, right. this tiny little organism kind of runs the household for you now. Um, so yeah, I get just that. Turn around. You just got to back off and go with Of course them. it does. It forces you to flow, right? Of course it does. And, and, and deserves attention. So, and does rightly need that attention mm. because every child takes you back to your childhood. Every child that's born, you in, one, in a healthy way have to relive those days meditatively of course it's chaos but in that chaos are flashes of your own upbringing mm. as well as other parts of your brain and your body opening up especially in the woman but also in the man as well literally on a cellular level right and not to mention we've been talking here about masculinity yeah under masculinity comes birthing and being a father and maybe a second time around or whatever and then the dynamics of a relationship changing with the wife whether you know and and, and some women get really neurotic around this time uh, because there's atavistic things happening that most people don't know how to deal with, you know, or they'll, the medical profession, it's just a food phobia. It's just it's all the lies they're telling you, but a doula or somebody who really knows goes, no, no, this is something. And if you're really on a mystical level and you know more about women's psychology, you'll know, Oh, wait a minute. Having a birth for them, you know, is an atavistic aspect that opens deep mammalian. You know, it's like all women are a chain of ova down through the centuries so every woman is part of that chain so she doesn't act independently in her even in her daily life although they have the illusion of that but at the time of pregnancy any illusion of independence biologically and psychologically is laughable they are now tapping into whether they like it or not whether they choose it or not the chorus of all women who've ever given birth that's what young archetypes are it's a accretion of memory and the woman at that point is in this limbic, is, is in this sort of ab abscess where they're in the cradle of the great mother, so to speak. And some will resist it and, re you know, retain their independence. Others will recoil in a negative way and shut it out. Others will go with it. Others go with it too far, you know, and all this. So finding the balance uh, and not just reducing it to, you know, oh, it's a food phobia. It's a, 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 I'm a bit moody. Uh, I'm neurotic. I have some neurotic tendencies uh, and all of this. No, 
to look at the whole thing saying you are giving birth yeah millions of women before you have given birth so you're you're tuning into something then my goodness aren't you bringing another soul into the into the world that's not important that's not a factor the, you know the individual spirit of the child and how it needs to be nurtured as well and sending a message to the child whether it is truly loved or not you see we're into heavy do reading a few books what's that got to do you're right now at a point where this is important this is the ritual and it should never be seen as a loss and you know you'll be able to get back to those readings or books or whatever you know or you'll read them in a different way perhaps you know but this is a big learning curve and you know if you factor in even concepts like devolution you know, which I've written about, there's a very interesting story there about uh, which, which has to, a lot to do with the kind of children that are being born, you know, uh, in, in that way, about whether they're here to really uh, maintain the lie or whether they're here to change it and bring, you know, like Steiners and people like that. And that has a lot to do with the parent, whether the parent has said, raised them right or sent them into some state school, you know, with a bunch of oiks who'd know nothing uh, and the contamination that that can bring. Have they exposed them to music? Have they exposed them to animals? Uh, you know, they're reading them stories and mythologies, and most important, introducing the child to heroic, you know, sort of Robin Hood-like characters in the early days. Mm. You know, uh, I know people who've read, you know, C.S. Lewis to their children, and you know that that kind of thing, to introduce them to heroism, to greater thoughts. Uh, Ursula Le Guin, you know, all of that. So. If there's a lot of literature, a lot of encyclopedias when they look at pictures, you know, they're, they're, they're actually sucking in energy that they want to know about the world. That's why children can learn multiple languages, you know, before they're four years old, where they can never do it after that point. It's that formative stage that we were talking about earlier. Well, the more, more information that's around, the more the child's synapses will develop. It's love of knowledge. Because the one thing that's missing, we probably didn't touch on this, but the one thing that is missing is there's lots of knowledge, but there's very little love of it. There's plenty of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but hardly any intimacy. You see, so we've got a lot of things wall to wall, but we're missing the key ingredients that really make those things worthwhile. Mm. And we're missing also the wise, the wise ones who are letting you know what's missing. They just don't want to read the Ayn Rands. She was a Jew. She was a Nazi. She was, uh, you know, they have that. Look at the shit that they're firing around. So my job is to, you know, take it off, get in there, and say, no, no, let me tell you the truth about that. That's not true. Or Hegel. Some of the most misinterpreted human beings that have ever lived. How are you going to dig through all that misinterpret? Well, I'll do it. I love those thinkers that much that I will do the spade work mm. and hope that people see a glimmer. Did something on Hegel last year, you know, so, and there's more to come. So like I said, there's five parts of the idealism series to come. It's a one of a kind thing because I'm not timid. I, I'm not holding back from laying out the truth because I don't care what people think about it. And that's not just some fancy statement. That is an absolute fact. I'm dealing with the thought of the person and, mm -hmm. and bringing it forth to the world. I don't care what the world's thought is. I know I've done my job. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me whether they like it, don't like it, pay for it, or don't pay for it. Well, I love that. I love that. I come from a very, very similar place. So um, I get that spirit that drives it, you know, it's service to truth. Truth is, is what ultimately the thing that, you know, matters. Like you, you would be, kept up at night if you delivered a distorted interpretation or you knowingly you know bastardized the message to serve an agenda or whatever you just have to get the accurate version the truth about it and that's that's the end in itself kind of thing yeah why not it's a standard you set for yourself and if you make an inadvertent mistake which happens a lot you know then you do on the next podcast clear it up 
you know, and you just remember what, like I made a slip there about, you know, the Queen Helena being Constantine's wife. Actually, it's his mother. All right, so I'll make a note of that or I'll put a link or I'll, I'll you know, I'll try to correct in the next podcast or at some point that, no, sorry, that was a mistake, a flub. Everybody makes those. And then you say, okay, I'm going to correct that just in case they thought, or maybe the person, like I put those links below routinely, click on the first link, there's the answer. And so I make it right as much as I can. Uh, and that's part of a scholar's work. All textbooks have a rata, you know, and uh, spelling errors or whatever it may be. So yeah, in the hurry of doing a podcast, as you well know, or, you know, sometimes you didn't have enough chance to yeah, nail something down. Okay, but you could do on the next one. Just bring it up then. So it's a routine, it's a discipline. The main thing is you're out there doing it. You know, that that's the key thing. And uh, the first website I said, as I said, that was eventually became, oh, I guess I am talking to the world. First, it was, you know, me storing information. And then I realized I had to accept after, say, the second or third year. Oh, damn. <laughs> that, you know, I'm a public figure, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, as I said, these conference guys wouldn't let go of me. They kept. And actually, one thing happened in uh, 2003, which was important, is that Brian Hall the conspiracy con guy who ran that, it was it was conspiracy. So on the previous one in 2002, I'd said to him, look, I, you know, because he said, I want you back. I said, yeah, but look, and I remember we're sitting, sitting outside and John Anthony West was just standing there talking to some people. And I never forget this. And I said, look, and this is early in my career. I think I'd only done two or three talks. And I have the gall to say, look, I don't want to do any of the subjects I've done before, could I do subversive symbolism? It's a thing on, you know, subversive symbolism. It took him nine months to think about it. Wow. So again, you know, there's a certain amount of rigidity in, in the platform that where his was, it was got to be about chemtrails or Illuminati or, you know, whatever. And I was the first one to come to him and really push his button. And then about nine months, about three months before the conference was on, he did email me and he said, okay. But in all that time, I just sat there twiddling my thumbs. I could have been working. If he had gone, yes, sooner, I would have had a better program together. So he tells me yes, only at the very last minute. Now, granted, he did say yes. So I give him the stars for that. And yes, I did get up. And it was the first time ever that anyone had done it. And we did have slides. They were thrown together far too quickly for me. And I perfected it later for the DVDs. You know, the Origins and Oracles, I got to do a much better job there. But that little thing, I think it's still up on the net. That was a, a talk that took things in a different direction. And the crowd loved it, as I knew they would, right? And all the other speakers loved it. Well, that's really refreshing because it wasn't, you know, some of these guys to this day, 30 years later, are saying the same thing that they did when I joined. They mm -hmm. haven't even, I won't name names, but by God, talk about stock record. Mm -hmm. I had changed it within two years. And mm -hmm. I swore to these people that I can't do the same talk twice. Mm -hmm. And that talk was never done twice. And never, ever was a talk done twice. I have literally been varied. Now, so elements creep in. Yeah. But even then, it's embellished to the nth degree. Like you'll have 10, 20% of something I've said before, but there's a whole slop of, you know, new things like age of manipulation. We took that in many different directions. So nothing has been repeated. Nothing ever at the cost and detriment of being called to conferences. Because once it gets a little bit outside their sphere of, of interest, they don't know what to do with you. Mm. The conferences themselves are limited. Yeah. And that's okay. That's what they want to be. That's how they were created. But for my message, don't you see? And then radio shows started becoming like that because you're getting, you, we're talking like we're doing, you get these hosts 
trying to immediately go, you know, get like, you know, I, don't know, I won't even mention names, but a lot of the original and some of them are really, really mega shows, big, big shows. I won't go on. They've contacted me on numerous occasions and I keep telling them, nope. Because, you know, hit them back with you. And I know what they want me to talk about. Go back into this thing or go back into that, the old Atlantis thing or whatever. Jesus, don't you read what I've done? I've moved so far on. And you guys are thinking it was 10, 20, 10 years ago. So I'd rather go on think, podcasts like this where we can talk in general about things right up to today. That is not actually the way it worked through all the podcasts I've done uh, and these uh, different radio shows. Of course, the format was bad as well. You had really crappy audio. Some of my best talks were done yelling at the top of my voice, done a, you know, a mic, done a, uh, on dial-up or on a telephone into the next state. Now I can talk to you in Australia. I mean, you know, yeah. I was waiting for those times. And I've been to Australia. We did a, a tour there in 2011, post-humanism. And that was uh, prepared over a period of more like probably seven months. So it came out really well because at the time, you can't call a person to do a competent talk in front of the leading lights in the movement in three months. Mm. So I winged it, you know, and, and they came out okay and everything. But as you say, you know, there's a time and a place. Seven months was good. I was able to get a good presentation together and think of the thread and divide it into proper sections, you know, and, and give something for everybody, newbies and people who are really seasoned. So they're not bored. Mm. And afterwards, I got people who came up to me really seasoned. They said, we love that. You didn't bore us. Mm. You know, in Australia and then you got the newbies and they they were brought in it was really interesting stuff for them just like we did architects of control that was perfectly designed for have little parts which are really new 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 to the thought and a lot that was uh for absolute newbies say that that was the say that was like you you showing a mate you know the first film on this subject that's what we tried to do and in that there was a heavy uh dose of which I always do, which is bring forth the greats. Jim Keith would be the number one that was kind of dedicated to him. <sighs> How many people actually read? That? You want to understand today's world? And you haven't read Jim Keith? Oh, oh dear. Oh dear, 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 dear. <laughs> this man is telling you about ELF waves. Yep. How they can stimulate your emotion from a fucking satellite. How they can, all that 2020 stuff. Inaudible sounds to get people irritated, to get them running at each other's throats, to stir thoughts in their mind, to put voices in their heads, right? This man is the expert in that. Others have done it, but Jim Keith, mass control, mm -hmm. right? So, so Architects was dedicated to the technology that if they want, you could literally be walking around zombified and you wouldn't even know it. The whole human race, they don't need H-bombs. They don't need smart bombs. They just push a button. And like it was one time in the Japan when they had a crash, Guys were getting up in the morning, putting on their suits and ties, getting their briefcases and going out to say, I'll see you later, love, and walking down to their businesses, you know, these big corporate towers, and walking round and round in the lobby for eight hours. They couldn't break the habit. Wow. Right? Walking around the streets with their briefcase, no jobs to go to, no desks to sit behind. It's an actual fact. This actually happened. They have a syndrome for it. And they're just walking around, going through the motions. There's no self there. And their lives have been so regimented. And Christ knows, you know, that was a trauma state. Yeah, Jim Keith is telling you, the white, somebody at the White House, the military intelligence, press a button and we'll be all the same. And we wouldn't even know it. And when I look at 2020, <laughs> why does Jim Keith's face just keep popping up on my mind when I'm looking around? Because remember, there is a dose of such insanity in what happened in 2020 that it doesn't look like a natural, normal thing that people genuinely would do. No, it looks too weird for that. It looks just that bit more contrived, just that little bit more technological behind it. So we have no idea what the, the military are doing and they can do it. They can blink out the internet. 
They can send us back into the Middle Ages in seconds. And I'm not the expert on that, but I love that work. And that program brought forth his knowledge. Another one will bring forth another man's knowledge. It's the only thing that keeps me going. <laughs> I love it, man. I, uh, I'm very aware that it's what, like 3.40 or something in the morning for you right now? Oh, don't worry about that. We can go a bit more. I, uh, yeah, you just let me know when you got to go. Um, I'm gonna have to get off soon-ish, but yeah, 15 minutes more, maybe whatever you want. To yeah, do. it's you're you're a night out. You're, you can withstand these um these times of the morning. I would I'd be in pieces right now, but um, I'm lucky. It's just early afternoon, so yeah. I mean, what I mean, do you think? I don't know. What is the takeaway or my like? What's your message if someone had? To ask you, like, what's and it's such a cliche, but you know, what is the the point of Michael Tassarian's work at the end of the day? Like, what are you trying to communicate to the individual? Oh, exactly. We have touched on it, and that is to lead them to the great thinkers. Right, and that's not to say that my work doesn't have loads and loads of my own raw thought. It does. I mean, that's just clear, and only very ungenerous people. Oh, he just cuts and pastes from other people's books. If I was able to have the time to read as many books as he would, I'd be the same. That's very ungenerous because it's loaded with my own thought and it's loaded with my interpretation. People have had a shocker. You know, I ran this and then they go and read the books I recommend and find it nothing there that they thought. Mm. Yeah, because I have processed it through my consciousness and the way it comes out in a presentation or a slideshow is with bad mixture of my own thought. And that's where they're shocked when they go and read a lot of these other people and don't find it iterated the way. You know, that, that, that say I'm mentioning, but at the same time, that is the answer to the question. There is no motive holding me on here. There, there couldn't be, right? There's absolutely nothing to recommend me continuing doing this work, especially now that there's a glut. And before there was this, or before there was that, or there was blowback. Or, so at every stage that I'm at, there's always mega reasons to stop. Always, they're looming, they're very palpable, right? Uh, and all of that. But the only thing that I create these platforms for, and very deliberately when they were created, and it's, I've proved it all along, is that to get people up to these Jim Keiths, you know, and, and men like that, your Antonio Ludovici's, these Velikovsky's, you know, all of these people I mentioned over and over again, and try to liberally put them into the premiums. And if people go, hey, like our latest guest, Caleb, he dived deeply into Cummins Bulma. And it's changed his life. He's off on research I couldn't even fathom, you know, where he's going with that. And that's it. That's, that's what I wanted. And there's people that you can drop an atom bomb beside them and the candle is still unlit. Oh, yeah. No matter how many years you spent with somebody, nothing has inspired them to do that. However, there's some voice out there, some person out there who listens once and their life has changed. Uh, who's that Ayn Rand? Who's that Nathaniel Brandon? I, I pick up, I found a little book on that guy. I'm going to read it or saw something online. That does look intriguing. And I do get a lot of hits telling me, Michael, what book should I start with? Or where should I go? And I got four libraries on my websites and I have them. I send those to people. So I'm not going to tell you what book to read, but I'll give you these libraries. All my sites have these libraries. Pick one that looks good to you. You know the title? Just go, just order one and buy one that looks like it's interesting to you and, and start there. There's no starting place per se. There's just glance at the lists uh, on any of these four websites, germanophobia.net has a good list and all of them have good lists, start there. Uh, or come and check out the podcast and premiums because I am referring to these people over and over again. You know, and it may be somebody like just like Dr. Robert Mendelssohn, you know, with this whole thing of a malpractice mm. because the medical profession is one of the greatest evils that we could ever imagine. They're, they're literally murder incorporated. They're killing people who have cancer. They're telling people who don't have cancer that they have it and then plugging them full of drugs. 
telling destroying people families who don't have COVID that they've got COVID. <laughs> yeah, and that's natural to them. They don't know any other way. Yeah, but uh, that takes research. You just can't get into their faces, you know, with no research. That'll only make you suffer. They'll get back at you. So you have to do it in a more subtle, clever way to spread the message. So that man is important, and there's others as well. I can't think outside that. You know, half the list I've got of those, you know, podcast remain premiums is is basically at some point introducing somebody to another great thinker. Mm. It's sort of built around that, and I think the members know enough about me now to know that that's the motive. Yeah, that, awesome. that's the motive. And hopefully they should do it too, because if they do it and find a person I've never heard of, like a great writer they think is good, uh, they might be able to then, you know, promote that writer as well. But I'm kind of a little bit limited because there's a lot of writers out there who may have not be, you know, they may be false. And there are, there are. So, you know, I try to, I try to go to the names that I know are really, really strong. You've obviously spent many, many years doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got a vast, like, very broad and pretty deep knowledge across many subjects that are, you know, psychology and religion and mythology and all this sort of stuff. So it's been, I mean, how many years have you kind of been, since you've had that point where you started, how, how long would you say you've been going for? Uh, probably since in earnest about the 89, 90 period. Because one thing about getting to America is, you have the bookstores in front of you. So I was able to make good use of them. In Ireland, if you walked into a bookstore, this is in Belfast, and asked for a book by, say, Madame Blavatsky, several things would happen. <laughs> One, you get dirty looks like you could. This is a Protestant, right? So narrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You look up the word narrow, and you can see a picture of a fucking <laughs> Protestant bookstore owner in Belfast. <laughs> And secondly, he goes, all right, then. And he'd be looking at it, he writes it down. I will have to order that one. You know, I walk out and I look through the glass. He's chucked yeah. it in the trash. Yeah. You can't phone back. You can't say, did you order my book? It's, it's over. It's over. They'll, they'll yeah. get really mean and rude. And this is all over the place. So getting to America, I had books that had been sent to me from America and a few I'd bought in Ireland. And uh, But do you remember those years I told you I was very, very depressed? I, they were right in front of me, but I couldn't reach out. In depression, I just couldn't have the mental energy to reach out for a book as much as I want to open it and read it. It was impossible. It's just physically impossible. It took all I could to even get over to the philosophy class. And I told you, I didn't buy any books. I didn't actually do any homework during the week. And I didn't sit the exams. I just sat there for something to do mm-hmm. and meet people. And it turned out all of that worked great. We met great people in the class. The teacher was wonderful and uh, my brain was nourished, but I certainly didn't have anything like the energy, the physical energy or the mental energy to sit classes and all that stress. Well, when I got to America, that changed because the bookstores were there. I was working retail. I got some money and I spent it all on books. That's how I got that 32 or 36 crates of books. I think it was up to 36 at one point. It was because a guy helped me, a guy lad from Belfast came over and helped me move. This is in America. And he was like, Jesus Christ. And he, and he mentioned how many there were. And uh, that's the time that I knew it. this is too, too much. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was reading, but I was reading at the register. I was reading, you know, I got fired from umpteen jobs because I would read at my lunch break. <laughs> it would go over, you know, I'd read it literally at the register and I got fired so many times from jobs. <laughs> um, and then I went part-time, bought myself a little bit more time, turned off the phone, turned off the television and read, you know, and, and, and then read again. So when I say to people like, you know, the whole entire work of, say, Carl Jung has been read five times in a row, exactly that is the case. The collected works of Mullins, L.A. Waddell, many other collections, the collected works of Ayn Rand, right? When I say they've been read multiple times, they have. And then, then I learned around about 
96 or something like that, more moving towards 97, 98 to take notes. This is the first time I actually typed notes before I was just underlined like everybody does. At a certain point, a major change took place where I would actually type out the parts by hand of the, of, I didn't know anything about the public. I was just doing it for myself. And then I realized that that doesn't work either because when you read back on notes that have been excerpted from a book, I don't remember the context. Mm. So then I start adding notes below these, you know, these paragraphs out of type out what it's about or why I'm making a note. So now the thing has become like a, a dinosaur. I have to type in, oh, he means this. Like if I'm reading Julius Evel or one of these people, I have now to make a footnote to remind myself because five years could go by and you go back to this document and go, what the fuck is this? I, I don't even remember where the context is because your brain's somewhere else. Yeah. So I learned that all that typing out is worthless. So then you make it worth something by adding your own notes. So I have reams and reams and reams of documents of excerpted books. And I learned to, to the many years go by or months, I can go back and I will understand it because I made a note. I go, oh, okay. Yeah, glad I did that because now I know what this is. And if you're going to go on to become a writer, you know, of, of your own books, this is essential so that you can lay your hands on the information. Mm. So you can actually lay, stop thinking, well, I read a book once about that, or no, I know where to go. And I have them in folders, you know, on different subject matter. And so this helped in the public addresses or making a podcast, because I can go now to the hundreds of documents and there's podcasts galore, or there's, you know, a public address galore. I can take it in all sorts of different places, but it was hard work because you're trying to do menial jobs at the same time with a bunch of airheads uh managers i'm talking about uh you have money problems rent isn't paid uh or it is paid but you're living in a dump because this is all the part-time work will afford you see and and i had a particularly difficult time with landlords i mean just in a row i can count 30 places i might have lived then i <coughs> i finally the last one of, one of the ones that was like at the end or at a certain point in the mid 90s the, it was so bad. We even had to go to court and stuff. It was so bad. I gave up living in apartments altogether and tried to use my month's money or what you know, the weekly money. Uh, it was something like three hundred dollars a week you'd earn, you know, from working in one of these grocery stores. I tried to live in hotel rooms because they're very, very expensive, and you can only book them, you know, till twelve o'clock in the morning. But I, I came to this conclusion that because I'm actually working from nine, I might be able to do that. So for about two years, I just did, in fact, spend all the money on living in hotel rooms. Wow. And it, it didn't work because it's so bloody expensive. Hmm. But on the El Camino Real, there are literally thousands of these hotels all the way from San Francisco to San Jose. So I did that route. Some of these were whorehouses. They were hotels, but they're basically used by the scuzziest of, of prostitutes. You know, so they move out and I'm moving right in. <coughs> Horrible life. Then I got sick of that and I bought a very cheap van, like a VW from some guy who was about to trash it. And I lived, slept in the streets on that. And in the Bay Area, if anybody knows, you can't do that because the cops invariably come over. I mean, you couldn't even do it for one night. They find you. Wow. Either somebody in the house reports that there's a strange van in our street or whatever, or even when I try to park, park and work, fucking three in the morning, knock, knock, knock. And sometimes they let you stay. Sometimes they let you move on. The place was like a police state. I got really fed up with that. And so it just, it just went downhill from there. I was like parking on, you know, expressways and under bridges. And you wouldn't believe the life I live. And I got a lot of knowledge actually about the Bay Area from that. Because uh, it would be trying to park in a different place every night, you know, so they wouldn't notice that you were there. 
because yeah. I was also composing my music and practicing the guitar, freezing cold in a van. The thing was so bad that if you turned the heater on, it either didn't work or it sort of blew up or something. There was never any heater. So I would just sit there in this little van uh, practicing, writing lyrics at that time, which I gave up. But, you know, I would study and I would read my books, all these books. The thing was weighed down heavier by these big out of print books that had shoved here and shoved there, you know, <laughs> and it was just unbelievable. But that that would be done under like a, not candlelight, but the next best thing. I mean, I literally have parked under streetlights to save the van's engine and the gasoline because it's so little money, you know. And every time I found a good place to park where I thought, oh, this is much better now, you know, used to park at the Stanford Mall. No, they got security guards. They don't call the police. The whole place got security guards all night. And, uh, you know, they know you. And they, they come on, yeah, come on, man. We told you before, fuck off. I used to be like, there's nobody around here, right? But it's near the Stanford Hospital. It's near the kids' hospital, the Ronald McDonald. Place. So it's full of trees and there's nobody around. Why are you moving me on? Well, no, that's, that's like a derelict. You know, it's like, you're this good. It's just, I'm not, I've got a license. Uh, I'm in a van. Uh, I'm just parked here. Just imagine that I'm here. <laughs> like, you know, parked. I'm actually studying all night. No, no, no. We're going to have to call the police if you don't move on. So I would drive up and down El Camino Real in the middle of the night. With nowhere to go year after year after year how long were you living like that years i had other problems too that you know i would yeah the parking issue was a problem and uh, i even had relatives that wouldn't allow me even in, in into the house to take a shower in the morning or, or make myself a hot cup of coffee so you don't want to know the story one day you know maybe <laughs> Memo. Uh, it's a it, it was pretty bad even on a domestic front yeah. Every every problem that could happen did happen. I had some amazing adventures as well. Then I started doing taxi for a, a, a and that was crazy. It's a very dangerous job. Other than police, the, the second most dangerous job in the Bay Area is driving a cab. And so that was an adventure. And I picked up uh, all sorts of everything from murderers, you know, the whole A to Z. I picked up Illuminati people that didn't even try to hide it. Wow. I picked up people who were so evil these are people flying into the Bay Area and, and then I would drive them to these bizarre, you know, Silicon Valley locations and uh, would need three days sleep after driving one of these guys around. So I had a wide experience. I, I, I picked up heavy duty Microsoft people, lovely people, great people, enlightened people, evil people, soulless people. You know, so I had another experience there. <coughs> and the cab driver, the owner of this of the one of the cabs companies I worked for, like me, like the driving and he gave me a 24 hour cab, which was a, you know, like a, a privilege only after a week or two, he trusted me. He knew I was honest and he gave me a 24 hour cab. So not having a good car or van, I could use the cab on my days off. So I would be able then, and they were approved. They said, just call in and tell us you're you know, private today, or, you know, you're not signing in and you can use the cab. So I used that cab to go to all the bookstores. You see, you know, I, I, I kind of used it as much as I could to get to these uh, psychic eye bookstores and bolt up to San Francisco, you know, with a lot of in Berkeley, excuse me, in Berkeley, there's some good bookstores, you know, really old famous ones just to find these rare works. And many times I would have to sleep in the cab, you know, cause there was no apartment. There was no hotel. And uh, that went on for uh, so 95, 96, 97 until my health completely broke down because in these cabs, they don't have any heater. It's such a cheapskate job to work at. They had no heaters. So in the, in the winter, there was no heater. You had to keep the car on 
to, you know, on. And if you keep the engine on for hours and hours and hours, when you're sitting waiting for a call, it pickles your organs. And it, it's like, you know, I'm exaggerating, but it's, you're shaking. Mm. And it literally will pickle your organs, you know, everything, the electromagnetism. And in the summer, they have no cooler. They're not air conditioned. So in, in heat in the Bay Area, that would literally, your skin would turn black. The sweat itself would turn black and you're picking up customers and there's no heater. You had to go and buy these little fans, you know, the ones that whirly fans and hope that that would cool you down in like a hundred in the shade. Mm. And I remember sitting reading books and to this day, I can pull out books from my collection, particularly the works of Gerald Massey and show you stains on the books of sweat and blood and French fries and, <laughs> and ketchup. Those books, if you look at them, they're like a uh, history of where I was, you know, and what state I was in while I sweat bullets trying to read his books, you know, coming off your brow yeah. or going into a little cafe or whatever. And there's all sorts of problems. And the little diners that did exist where, you know, you could spend all night and the waitresses knew who you were. They saw your cab and they let you stay there and they bring your coffee and they, you could stay there for all day and night and they didn't care. They closed. So in the Bay Area, I was at the time when diners that had been there for the best part of 50 years were regularly closing. Mm. And all the taxi cab guys, you know, worried about it. And we just had a wave of it in the Bay Area where all these great places that all mom and pop places and, you know, cans and, and, and other places were closing, you know, because they couldn't afford the rent. These franchises, these ugly places were opening. And this whole sanitization, the strip mall. So any place with character that we all used to go <clears throat> and we loved it. And I read I have had an education of a lifetime through the 90s reading in some of these wonderful little mom and pop places open 24 hours. And the waitresses know, yeah, oh, what are you reading today? Or did you, I think I heard a call on your cab, you know, okay, girl, before cell phones, you know, and you'd run out and go on a little ride, come back, they feed you again, you know, you just sit there quietly, peacefully, having a coffee and reading. And I read the world's literature. So my education is courtesy of the Bay Area, these little diners and, and places like that. And one by one, they all closed till there was nothing left but these pompous ass, modernized, you know, do you want a spritzer with that? You know, just fuck off, you know, fuck the fuck off. And when I got to Melbourne, I must say, when I got to Melbourne, some of the streets there, names of, I can't remember, but I suddenly had a throwback going, oh, this is like the Bay Area. Once upon a time, you know, these Bohemian yeah. places yeah. that exist up there in Melbourne and of course, they have a few in Sydney as well. And uh, it, it, it was like a throwback going, this is the way it should be. These places are open late at night and everybody's having a party. And I had such a throwback in, in Melbourne, really liked it there. And the Bay Area just got too expensive, both for rents and for this ambiance. And we had nowhere to go. So, but it, And I, had to, I was just going to talk about the illness because of the cab, because of this extreme environment of the extreme heat and the extreme cold. Uh, my health broke down. And I had to get out of that job. Mm. And then I did go back doing retail, uh, you know, temporarily until a, a friends of mine just coaxed me to do readings for people. They said, you've got all this knowledge. What is it that's stopping you? And I had this extreme hatred of anything to do with the new age movement and the people that I knew because I found them all to be false with the exception of maybe Paul Solomon, the great teacher, everybody else I came into contact with. And this is a very wide group. This involves a lot of gurus and all sorts of different paths and multitude of different people. I can name the, the, the few. And some of them weren't even really part of the new age, the ones I liked, you know, but most of the new age, it left a very bad impression because we're so deeply involved with it that I, I start seeing them all as false. Mm. And so I ruined my health and ruined my life at that time by not earlier 
committing to doing readings and charts. But by 98, more about 97, maybe, I'll tell you what happened. It's actually a, bro a brother of mine who is a younger one. He had bought his own little collection of tarot books. You know, just he's like a Slayer fan, real Megadeth head, you know. But he had bought some esoteric books and he was very interested in it. And uh, his green card thing ran out or his, his uh, stay, some sort of, you know, his visa and nothing could be done about it. And he had to leave and he had to come back to Belfast. He sadly got murdered in 2012, but we lost him. So, uh, but he had left, as he was leaving, he said, I guess you have to, you know, can you take my books? Because, and I looked at them, they're all on esoteric subjects. And I went, fuck yeah, you know, I'll devour these. And so in 1998, I start reading because I missed him. So out of that, I would carry the books around in the cab or whatever, you know, in, in my van or whatever. And I would actually read them. And a strange thing happened that one of the books that he had inspired my entire Taroscope's website and everything I've done since mm. because it was so full of bullshit. He had this tarot <laughs> book and the guy had written, you know, he's obviously very and it irritated me that he didn't even know basic Golden Dawn correspondences or whatever so i got it it was at work and I, and I was technically the manager of this place so i got this pad and i start writing down methodically what would later become the taroscopes website you know of all the corrections to this guy's bogus stuff and we i'd done stuff like this in the past but never as heavy as this this really got me deeply interested and then these tables of correspondences that i had made when i look back at them i went oh my god they're right this works and then I did thousands of people's charts to prove the system. You know, I still have books today with all the celebrities, you know, all their dates of birth in there, and a lot of people I knew. And I couldn't believe it would become the Taroscope system that this system I had invented was correct. It was good for me. It was, uh, everybody else went, oh my God, you're, how do you know that about me? All right. But it was a different system than they had been used to. So I stuck with that. I didn't cave in and went, oh, well, I guess, you know, no, I stuck with it and followed it through. And did the classes, did the readings, and then built the website. And so from, you know, this kid's, uh, uh, you know, that, that sad day when he, he, he left the country. You know, we might never see him again or not for many, many years. And he was the only one I had camaraderie with. I didn't care about any of my other family. They were all bastards. So he was the only one I had the camaraderie with. And the rug was pulled from him. They sabotaged him. And the poor bugger had to come back to the streets of Belfast. And he was beaten up on several occasions by paramilitaries. I mean, really badly beat, you know, the bats with the nails in it and all that kind of thing and jumping out of three-story windows and all, all the hell that he had to go through. And then finally, you know, he, somebody murdered him. So that was the end of that. But I would look at that as being fated, that he left that little collection of books, you know, and toddled off. And it was just like one of the most heartbreaking fucking years. And I looked at his chart. I didn't even really tell him. But I looked at his chart that year he left and it was so fucking bad, man. It was so bad that I couldn't even tell him. I kind of wrote him letters later saying, be careful. You know, I try to put it in whatever words I could and give him a lot of suggestions about not hanging out in town and all. And of course he didn't listen and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. But he left me that collection and that's what got my, you know, goat. And I remember, oh, this how can he not see that Venus doesn't go with that and doesn't go with this? So I start doing what would later, you know, very shortly after become the theme of the Taroscope system. And then I went to a lecture, met a web designer there who liked me. And he said, hey, you know, I design websites for people. Uh, would you like to join or whatever? He goes, yeah. And he set up a personal meeting with me. 
And he said later that I was the only one. It was just two, three days later. And, and I had a whole design, like pages and pages of a design of a website. And it was perfect. And he said, you're the only one. He says, uh, you know, he was from the Bay Area. He had lived there for years. He had hundreds of different clients. And he said, they're all saying, they're all looking at him and say, pull it out of the air. You know, like designing a business card. So just, you do it, pull it out of there. And he's going to look at, I need to talk to you. What do you want? What color would you like? Oh, uh, I don't know. This is the early days of the internet. I'm the only one who walked in and go, well, here's the front page. Here's the design. Here's the font. Here's the, you know, and he, he, he moved on it. He, he moved on getting me the servers. And another guy actually helped build the physical site, you know, build it out. So I guess I got lucky, even though it was a tremendously long haul to do it. Everything seemed, you know, weighted with lead. Everything seemed difficult. And as I said, couldn't handle the landlords, couldn't handle the neighbors, couldn't handle the whole scene. It was so bad. It was so bad. Uh, one, one event that happened was uh, I had an apartment and I, went, I used to go down to the mailbox to get my mail. And for some reason, my mail was always torn. Could it be because I was getting a spotlight magazine and these conspiratorial type journals? But no matter what, I kept finding they were ripped, you know, and, I, uh, and suddenly I twigged that this is deliberate. It's not an accident. So I go down one time to the mailbox and this time it's a package that I'd ordered, a little box about this big. And it was, you know, they open the, the, the thing and they put it in and then they close it. When you come with your key to open the door, I can't get the box out. Hmm. Right. I go, what the fuck? And I'm standing there like, you know, doing this. And I realized the bugger's done this on purpose because there's actually a tray underneath where you can put packages uh-huh. and they're open, easy to pick up. So I went that ruddy bastard. So for two days, I waited for this fucker to come around. Right. Because they see the post office knows Patriot groups and they have them on a blacklist. And if you happen to be ordering them, they don't want you ordering them. So they tear up the magazines and newspapers and they, you know, make your mailing difficult so that you'll stop subscribing to those places. So I'm waiting and waiting and I'm waiting and I hear the van and I run down and I walk over and it's this Latino guy, right? And just from his attitude, I can tell he's the one. And I said, oh yeah, uh, hey, you know, uh, are you the guy that, you know, I was real polite and everything. Are you the guy, you know, I couldn't get this box out of the thing. You know, I had to rip it to get it out of the thing. I don't even think I did. I think it was still in there for days. He's me, you know, he goes, his attitude, typically, yeah, so what? Maybe a Christian, I don't know. So I start getting salty. And I'm like, yeah, is this the way you normally do it? Who's your fucking boss? What station do you come out of and who are you work for? Like, you know, really sort of, you know, Belfast, right? What the fuck happens? I'm getting him where I need him to go. And he's a bit worried now. The fucking guy who owns the entire apartment complex just happens to be there this is my i'm giving you this because this is an example of what i'm lived like over he comes in his golfing unit he's got these fucking plaid trousers on and his golfing you know gear sweater and he waltzes over and he stands there listening to us i'm the tenant so technically i'm paying him the money it's yeah. my package that's being def- you know torn and ruined and all this malarkey i've got to go through month after month what does he do he takes the side of the fucking mailer and the two of them Start giving me, yeah, what's your problem, dude? What is me? What I'm your tenant from 316 or whatever, right? Yeah. And he's acting the maggot. So you don't do that to Irish fucking people from the streets of fucking Belfast. You just don't. So <laughs> I just fucking I just get, gave them verbal like this guy was a oh my fucking god, as I went into a rant and then and you know telling him about why he's me to see his fucking newspaper. So you're a free country, right? I I you know I went into this whole thing and made them so uncomfortable. But this is what it was like on an hourly level 
with people. They see what you're being mailed. They see you. They see the car you're driving. They hear the music you're playing. They see the T-shirt you're wearing. You see, America is not free. America is not free, has never been fucking free. It is a police yourself stuff. The stuff in the White House, fuck that. It's everybody policing one another. It's the most passive aggressive fucking place, or at least California is, that I've ever had the misfortune to fucking know. And it's not much better in Seattle now. But the Bay Area was absolutely the most zombified fucking place that you could ever imagine. And that example I just gave you was multiplied a million times. Uh, they were, they were in the end, they were scratching your car. They were, you know, taking the cap off your fucking, I mean, just, you couldn't even believe it. So I gave up living in apartments and for years and years and years thought, Hey, I'll just live on the streets. It can't be any bust. But unfortunately nobody helped, nobody at work, nobody in my family, you know, gave a shit. It was always bad there, but you know, it became worse now because they would, uh, lock up in the morning and on the few days I did come around and park out in the street just to get a shower or a cup of coffee before I go into work, I find the doors locked. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah, I w- uh, then I, re- I lived in cafes. I lived in, uh, just giving you a little sketch here, you know, but I, I lived in cafes and I lived in those restaurants and I became wise from those people. So I'm, I owe more to waitresses who seeing what I was doing, good old, you know, 50 year old American women from the old school. Yeah. Working class yeah. people. The don't working class people go, yeah. I don't understand what you're doing, mate, but carry on doing it. I owe it to them and people like that. And to those veterans that used to meet me at the, you know, the bus station or the train station and inform me and get into just somehow they picked on me and came over and start talking deep politics, deep conspiracy. I'm like, what is this? What do you, every time they pick on me, yeah. they, you know, they have a certain insight. That's right. And I, I've, I've definitely benefited from that. But yeah, the, the story is a very, very painful and sad one. So I've earned every single part of the work and there is only one motive. Say it again. It is to get, these people, the wise ones, you know, to the table and into the hands of anyone that's in this planet. That's the job. So vocation. Yeah, you know, yeah. But it's not really about me or my image or, you know, endless self-referencing like other people do ad nauseum. You know, it's like, yeah, let me just get to the work and see if you like it. And we'll discuss it. It's just like two friends talking like we're doing right now, actually. Uh, let me just say uh, how much I actually value and appreciate what you've done and the crap that you've put up with over the years. I mean, it, it's such an interesting thing to me um, and I'll, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but I want to make the observation because you just illustrated it really beautifully with the the resistance and the hostility that you had to deal with as the, not just like the loner, not just an individual, but as someone who makes it their business to, if you like, be conscious and be like, um, I don't know, it's like, you know, in, in, people like Jung, for example, were kind of like psychological compensation mechanisms for the unconsciousness of the masses, right? And then you have this kind of like group, the mass collective resistance and hostility to that guy who goes and just tries to be aware and knowledgeable and wise and, and a lover of philosophy. You know, it's, it's astonishing, but this thing just seems to play out in people's people's lives like the more intensely um awakened or knowledgeable or wise someone gets that very often they have to go through this living hell as a result of the unconsciousness and the 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 shit these people just will heap on you just because you're not like them <laughs> yeah you're right it was sad that uh, although the sun shines in that state it's actually i went through a dark night of the soul it was a very opposite experience of other people 
and the story, I could tell you hundreds of horror stories, hundreds, literally, I can't even believe it myself, with bosses at work and managers and, and people, friends, neighbors, not friends, but acquaintances, neighbors, you know, and you're left in the ditch. So it's, it's a dark night of the soul. You have to go through it and you have to stay true to your course. And so when people ask me, how do you do all this work? I said, I've been trained. I went through the boot camp. I had to keep my focus. Otherwise, I would have killed somebody or been in jail. I'm not fucking joking here. There's several neighbor incidents. There was one time I called the police 36 times. Wow. So, you know, again, I tell, on, on, one, on one neighbor who's abusing an animal and all these kinds of things. And nothing ever got done. Because how could it? I'm the loser. I, I'm, 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 it's like, you know, I'm the one who's the stranger. And so it just mounted and mounted and mounted. And then with all of the other stuff, you know, it was very, very difficult. So I couldn't afford to lose the track. So when people see that, you know, what they think is passion now, or, you know, a lot of work production or whatever it might be, they don't understand that that was hard labor in the fields and the chain gang, because everything was thrown against me mm. and I didn't have the money to leave. Uh, that had already happened in years prior when things like that happened. This time it was, no, I was trapped. You know, and then one thing leads to another and then you're involved with people and you can't get away. You see, so, you, you know, none of, none of it was really willed. It's, it's a really strange journey. It's really mm. strange. Mm. But it, 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 the payoff was the knowledge and then the idea that I have a vocation. These are great names. And we've only mentioned a few of them. You know, there's so many in that list that even people still don't know. And I'm going to try and bring their work forward. You know, it's great we're doing the philosophy and the psychology, but there's a lot of other little names in there that people don't know about, and they really should. Uh, and it's very helpful because the past is the repository of truth. Every problem we have right now is solvable way so by just dipping briefly into the great works of you know the people in the past. And that involves many, many different uh, people. So I'm making websites on specific individuals and you know putting them on other websites that I've got. And so that's what it's all about. I have no time for you know anything else, and I haven't really had time to even look up and savor the whole story. It, it's so brutal that you know you just park it in the back of your mind and just look at the positives. I think is is really good things. But there's a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of blocks as well, a lot of things that could have made my life easier that just didn't come to manifest. False promises, false people, false state, and and the few people. See, here's the thing, right? I'm not dissing people because if I ever met anybody that was goodly, and I did. They were in the same fucking mess or or close to maybe not suffering as much because they weren't foreigners and they weren't lost in America, but they were still good people, but they had nothing either. They were also living on crumbs, so they couldn't help me. So, you know, and I've been in other places like this where the people who wanted deeply to help me and assist me couldn't because of their own domestic situation or their poverty. And anybody that could have helped me who had the tune of millions and were family friends and all didn't because as soon as they saw the content or this, the trajectory of what I was going they were, they just fucking exited. Yeah. You know, you don't exist, mate. And that's how I lived for 10 years or more. Actually, quite a lot more, but it was, the 90s were absolutely dreadful yeah. in that sense. It's, it's just, I could say the same thing. It's like this, every, this exact same thing you just said about all the good people who, who see what you're doing and value it and would support you can never have the resources to do it. And all the people that's who do right. have the resources Correct. to do it, they're not handing over a cent. <laughs> or care. They don't care. No, that's right. Mate, I'm going to, unfortunately, I have to cut this off because I got to go, man. Yep. But um, I really no, appreciate right. you taking the time to talk to me, especially at the late hour that you're in, man. And um, 
let's let's do this again sometime and and pick a pick a topic sure. and just take a deep dive into it but thank you but oh yeah just quickly what where will people find you uh and, and your work well right now it's unslave.com is where the podcast and the premiums are and uh michaeldesarian.com is where a lot of good articles are and, and michaeldesarian.com links you to all the other 14 sites that I've built and they were all completed after a 20 year you know since since they first started with Tyroscopes I finished the content of all of them last year so that was a milestone uh, and so they're all linked to msr.com or michaeldesarian.com hey Brandon mate thank you so much I'm sorry I missed your when you were on with David I missed that one because of god knows what but um been waiting to connect with you this way and you've also you know given me the time so it's wonderful that this worked out and really thank you for the work that you're doing too and for this interview yeah you're very welcome mate appreciate it. it's mutual um i'll leave it here and thanks again we'll uh we'll we'll have michael back on the show at some point in the future for sure uh, if he's if he's going if he's up for it and um yeah we'll leave it there thanks so much michael tesarian for being here this is another episode of truthverse thanks for tuning in we'll see you next time the Freedom Mirror is a community for entrepreneurs and business owners that gives you the tools and the system to create a new revenue stream online through high commission sales with automation and huge passive potential. With TFE, you can forget about small margins and small commissions and learn how to make five figures in seven sales or less. To find out how to set up your freedom business, check out the free training at brendandmurphy.com slash income. I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far, so if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the censors after Facebook, Fedbook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at truth.network, it's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.